Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Will one studio's decision to stream all of its movies right away be a final blow for struggling movie theaters? Plus, HBO's Allen vs. Farrow, the dramatic telling of the sexual abuse charges against famed Hollywood director Woody Allen, brought by his adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow. And Dolly Parton's new role as vaccine ambassador. Those stories and more in our Pop Culture Roundtable. Later in the show, feminism is feminism is feminism, right? Maybe not. A new book questions what feminism is and how it became a brand. Author Koa Beck on what she describes as white feminism. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Michael Jeffries, Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hi, Michael. Hi, Callie. Also with me, Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Rachel. Hi, Callie. All right, let's dive into what everybody's been doing constantly since this uh, COVID-19 pandemic started, which is streaming all of our entertainment. And I was fascinated. This is a decision that actually happened at the end of last year when Warner Brothers came out and said they're going to put all of their 2021 films out right away. No kind of hybrid with the movie theaters, no waiting, no, none of that. They're just going to put them all out there. Um, And as we all know, the movie theaters have been closed for most of the time. Some of them are now open at some limited capacity. So that is, it feels to me like a a death nail. But it also may be we've just shifted how we're going to look for entertainment now. And I wonder how you two feel. Rachel. You know, it's funny. Recently, I pulled out a book that I hadn't opened in a while. Netflix packaging in it from when we used to get DVDs in the mail. And like, yes, technology is changing, you know, faster than I recall as a child. And COVID is adding to that. But it was happening before, right? So, you know, like due to the fact that my father was a labor organizer, like my mind immediately goes to the labor context of this, right? Like, so there are like more marginal people losing their jobs, those who sell popcorn, for instance, those who sell tickets and so on. Um, And for this reason, there's been a resistance to Spotify. I mean, I realize that right now people can't go to movies, right? I mean, it's dangerous, but I have a feeling that um, that this is going to last. And yet, yes, movie theaters will shut, you know, some at least will shut down. Well, I think you're right about people losing jobs in this way because the theaters are, as I said, have just begun 
opening in limited capacity, and they're trying different kinds of methods to get to entice people to come back into the theater. But for the most part, people are avoiding going in person to theaters. The The other thing about this, Michael, is that when you have a big production, a big uh, movie like Judas and the Black Messiah, which is huge now, got a lot of attention at the Golden Globes recently, um, that's a lot. People will, they want to see that. They're forcing people to this, to this new way of trying to, to get the entertainment if they want to be sort of current culturally. And let me add to that before you comment, Michael, that Netflix, at the same time, when they've, they've been streaming all the time to begin with, well, I guess they used to send stuff, as Rachel said, they've made a pledge to deliver new movies every week this year to keep people coming back. So what say you? It's an interesting time because I think you're right about the kind of cultural pressure that we have to see a new hot movie as soon as it comes out. And streaming is going to make that mode of consumption the choice for everyone who wants to be able to keep current, right? Like if you really want to know why a movie is getting so much buzz, it's so much easier to do it streaming than to go to the theater. The other part of this that I wonder about though is because there are so many options available to us as consumers now, consumers of entertainment, I wonder if there's a way in which the streaming model will actually help the survival of the movie industry overall. So what I worried about with the pandemic was people just weren't going to think about movies in the same way anymore. (laughs) Like that it just wasn't going to be something that we were attuned to because we have, um, music concerts Mm -hmm. on Instagram and because we have this thing and that, I mean, Clubhouse and all these other innovations and people just weren't gonna be talking about movies anymore. But now giving people more ways to consume will actually allow the industry to last longer than it might have under other circumstances because they're not really taking a position, Warner Brothers not really taking a position, they're moving away from the theatrical model. They're still doing it in other countries, for example, that's the first way that other countries are going to get many of their movies is in the theaters. So I don't think they've really taken a hard stand that says we're moving away from theaters. I think they're just saying, how can we keep movies in the front of people's mind right now? Or without, you know, because if we don't, we risk losing uh, eyeballs that we really mm-hmm. need for our bottom line. Well, relative to what uh, Rachel said, is there a way that there will be new jobs created, you know, focusing in this arena and the way that people get their entertainment from streaming? Or will all of those people that she mentioned just be out of luck? Yeah, I mean, I think retail, I'm not an expert in this particular industry, but I think retail business, physical, you know, uh, brick and mortar business, movie theaters, uh, retail clothing, that kind of thing. Those those businesses are struggling. And I don't think we're going to see those jobs come back in exactly the same way. But movie productions are big business too, right? Like it's not just the actors who get the six figure checks who are part of that economy, right? That's a huge economy in California, in the state of Atlanta where many movies are filmed. So, so I think there's, there's some value to keeping the movie business going, um, but, but no question, Rachel's right. Um, the folks who are gonna pay the highest tax for these industry shifts are working class folks. And just to put a button on this, to your point, there was just a big movie filming here for several weeks. I'd just like to remind uh, folks that Massachusetts also benefits greatly from the movie business. Um, it's it's very central to many small businesses 
existence and survival as well in different ways, like, you know, little sandwich shops and other kinds of things that are, are connected to the, the movies when they arrive in town and are and are doing the shooting here. So that's there's that. Uh, let me transition to this. Uh, Michael, you introduced a subject, and that's Clubhouse. It's an invite-only new platform. If you haven't heard about it, you haven't been invited. <laughs> and so um, it's kind of a weird thing. I've been invited and haven't had time to go explore it, but it's hot. It's happening. And some people believe it's going to be uh, the music mecca because everything is happening there. A lot of talk shows. It sounds like a lot of what we have outside of Clubhouse, but just in a more free form, if you will. Michael. It's been a topic of discussion in some of the social media uh, circles that, that, that sort of touched my life, in part because of the celebrity cachet you mentioned. Callie, I like how you gave that little humble brag, like I've been invited, I just haven't had time. You know, my social <laughs> life is so busy right well. now. I haven't had the time to really, you know, catch up with Denzel and all the other folks on Clubhouse. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> they keep you busy. But I think, you know, what's that's one of the things that's attracted folks' attention right now is there's a kind of celebrity cachet to it. The place my mind goes when I hear about some of these things, and especially the frequency with which we're now getting live performances, whether it's on Instagram or Clubhouse or other forms of, you know, social media and things like that, is I just really worry that we're devaluing the performance space, because unless they're finding new ways to monetize it for the artists that really make it worth their while, like to me, there's something, there's something virtuous about going to a small music venue and paying an artist to see and hear live music. And the fact that during the pandemic, we've now substituted that commerce and the music industry and other artistic industries, we built this substitute where it's like, this is supposed to be equivalent to going to a concert. I worry about what we're losing there. So it'll be interesting for me going forward is once it's no longer as exclusive, how central to the cachet of the platform are these live performances? And if these live performances are central, what does that say about the value of artistic labor and how is the compensation being, being worked out? Rachel. Yeah, see, I personally don't think of these as live music, right? It's recorded. So I think live music is like when you go to a place and there's other people around you and people dance and people, you know, shout and sometimes people sing along and sometimes you see other people reacting. Like I... I don't I, I think that applying the term live music to something that's actually recorded is really it's just a strategy. And I, I don't you know, I don't think this is live music. Mm-hmm. What do you think about it as a cultural phenomenon, Rachel Clubhouse? As a cultural phenomenon, I think it's a way to have to save artists around the world. Like, I do think that it will help them. But then after this is over. What if this is like what we have? Oh, yeah. You know, you have to mm. know that like there have been a lot of um, live music spaces in the Boston area that have shut down mm-hmm. during COVID-19. And I kind of I, I don't know if they're going to reopen again. Well, there's been uh, some money set aside for the stim- in the stimulus packages for some. But the smallest ones are 
very much at risk because on the first go round of the stimulus funding, they were completely left out. Right. So if you didn't sort of hang on by, you know, hook or crook um, until now where you're presumably going to get some support, you know, it's likely that we've seen the end of a lot of those uh, spaces. And, and to your point, you know, that's where you usually get the new, the fresh, the whatever in the small places where, as Michael says, you can connect and people can find you. Well, let's move on. I am interested in musicians tackling this time as they have. We talked here on this show earlier about people who were taking popular songs and turning them into, you know, coronavirus kind of ditties. But I was just interested in uh, the fact that there are uh, musicians who, many of them now, who have taken some time to sort of respond to this moment. And one of them is um, Mr. Liff. He is a Boston-based rapper, and he's written a piece called The New Normal. So here's an audio clip of Mr. Lift's song, The New Normal, a collaboration with Stu Bangus. Unleashes some pieces of pure energy, the sun secrets, the technique through which I hold the globe and unload a bucket of gold and scrolls. Now you know hard beats and these rhymes will adorn you. We warned you we would storm through the new normal. Rachel, respond to Mr. Lift and what he's doing here. <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a big Mr. Lift fan, but like this is a very clear example of hip hop's role in telling history. And I think that try to convey to my students that this is pretty much true of all musical forms, right? Like there's tons of country songs about factories moving to Mexico and so on, but it's quite obvious here. And it's especially true of um, non-white history, which is addressed, you know, directly in a 1989 hip-hop song by the Jungle Brothers called Acknowledge Your Own History, which notes that African-Americans are being left out of history books and hip-hop is playing the role of the history books. So I think Mr. Liff is doing that here. And I think it's pretty important in this moment to have that history uh, attended to in a musical format, Michael, because we're now, uh, the vaccine's here, right. but we're transitioning and what will be the new normal? Yeah, no question. I mean, I think a couple of things specifically about hip hop's role here is so many of the artists who have made music that at least touch it, even if the whole product isn't dedicated to this moment, uh, parts of the project are. So I'm thinking of artists like uh, Busta Rhymes, who released an, al an album last year that had many of these themes in it. Black Thought, who's the frontman mm -hmm. for The Roots, released an album fairly recently that had some of these themes in it. Um, they're bringing a racial lens to the pandemic, an American racial lens to the pandemic that is essential for understanding why the virus has played out the way that it has in this country. We understand that the virus has played out in, in really terrible ways all over the world, but why does our particular form of social inequality matter? Because the reasons for the spread, the way it's been framed by the media are racialized, right? When you think about racial inequities in healthcare, um, when you think about the inability to have a true public health system and who's, who's deemed worthy and unworthy, of healthcare, when you think about the struggle over vaccination and trusting healthcare professionals and black folks long history of being mistreated by the medical industry and how that matters to the economic and medical recovery that we're now going through. So I think bringing a racial lens to this is really important and rappers are doing that quite well. And the other piece that you kind of gestured toward Callie is we've wanted to move past this so desperately from the very beginning. Mm. We don't wanna mark this time. 
because it's because it's so traumatic because there's so much death because it was because the science was denied by people at the highest levels of our government we don't want to do it but hip hop is playing a role here and it's saying we have to describe the trauma right we have right. to mourn we have to do that and and music is one of the most powerful media we have for doing those things not only recording the history but accessing the emotion of the moment the pain and the necessity of grappling with that pain if we're going to get to anything that can be called the true recovery mm -hmm. because because going to the next thing is not repair going to the next thing is not true recovery that's denial and we can't afford that uh, certainly not now the, the harm that covid-19 has done is not even just medical right it's like about people getting losing their jobs and getting evicted and so on and that is also clearly racialized if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Michael Jeffries, professor of American Studies at Wellesley College, and Rachel Rubin, professor of American Studies at UMass Boston. It's our pop culture roundtable. Well, somebody who is trying to do a different thing with this moment is uh, Dolly Parton, and she's using her social capital as both star, singer, you know, Hollywood icon, must-be-loved star, really, we should say, uh, as a vaccine ambassador. And if people haven't heard, you're lucky to get the vaccine, one of them, the Moderna, because she invested uh, at least a million dollars in its development. So Dolly got her vaccine the other day. She turned one of her own songs into a uh, promotion to help other people uh, see the value. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. <laughs> <laughs> That's Dolly Parton uh, remaking her own song, uh, Jolene, uh, for vaccine education. What do you think, Rachel? Yeah, I think that was I think that was great of her. Jolene is her most popular song among people who are not, you know, necessarily country music fans overall. And um, I also want to point out that she requested that her statue come down. Right. That they, you know, they were going to put up. a Well, they were proposing a statue and she said, no, she didn't want it. Right. Exactly. She yeah. said she did mm -hmm. not want it because it was not like it, it was racialized. That's what she seemed to imply. And she also said it. She just thought this was is it was inappropriate. Yeah. That yeah. there were other yeah. issues and, you know, like life and death issues right now. Right. To be attending to and not building a statue in you know, right. her honor. Right. So anyway, so she played a really good role funding the vaccine research. She did not take credit for it. That's right. right. It like came out right. from somebody else. And then she sang this song. You gotta love her. Michael, I assume you do. <laughs> I can't, you know, I really can't say that I'm the, a huge fan of her music. However, her cultural resurgence in this moment goes beyond this song. I, I mean, if you look at the number of stories that have been written about Dolly Parton in the past two, three years, it's it's really been something to behold. And I think part of the reasons for her resurgence are related to her role during the pandemic as someone who invested in the research and has now become an advocate for getting the vaccine itself. But she's also just, a, there's been a rediscovery of her history as a feminist icon, as a, as a woman worker in a business 
that is is and was downright hostile to women creators and people are rediscovering you know she's written thousands of songs she developed and and, and pushed forward a genre in ways that few women have had the opportunity to do she's remained relevant almost like she's remained culturally and politically relevant without casting herself as kind of an activist icon but if you look at what she's done and the kinds of things she's participated in and things she hasn't done, for example, she turned down the opportunity to be awarded, was it a Presidential Medal of Freedom? Mm -hmm. So just all of those signals that she's given to her fans. And look, she has fans that cross the generations and cross cultural groups. And in many ways, her style has become central to um, many of her queer fans who, who understand yes. the intervention she was making on um, what a performer in this genre was supposed to look like, was supposed to wear, et cetera. So, so I think she's, she's, she's had a really interesting cultural resurgence that has crossed generations in ways we don't, we don't normally see. I'm just pleased that people now know that she has been behind for years and years, the Imagination Library, that every kid in that very poor part of Tennessee gets a book. And uh, she's funded that quietly and, you know, until people start writing stories about it. I mean, it's just... It's amazing uh, because, you know, they didn't she was poor. They didn't have that when she grew up um, and what she's done for reading and literacy by itself. That's a, separate from her. All of her singing is to me. I just love her just for that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Michael Jeffries of Wellesley College and Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston. It's our pop culture roundtable. Anyway, moving on. Here is a resurgence in a different way. The Me Too movement got started because of some very important journalistic work done by uh, Ronan Farrow. He happens to be the brother of Dylan Farrow, and they were both raised by their mother, Mia Farrow, who was for a time married to and worked for Hollywood icon director Woody Allen, who many, many years ago divorced her and moved on and married really one of Mia Farrow's adopted children, one of the older adopted children, Soon Yi, and they've been married forever, so this is not a fluke. But all along, Dylan Farrow, the younger sister of Ronan, has said that when she was seven, Woody Allen sexually abused her. When she first wrote about this years ago and talked about it, you know, that was hard for her to come out and say, you know, people weren't really publicly talking about those stories. You know, people said, okay, but it, it wasn't embraced in the way that often happens for for women who have who make sexual abuse accusations they're not believed it's a hard space to be in you know many questions to the victim and not to the potential accuser he's not gone to jail there's no criminal stuff going on that's the background but here now comes a movie HBO's Allen versus Farrell which allows a a revisiting of her story and accusations and all of that in a way that is now contextual with the Me Too movement. Rachel, your take. Well, first of all, I think he became sexually involved with the woman he's married to now before she was 18, and she was an adopted daughter. So he is now married to his former stepdaughter, and there were nude photographs he took of her that showed he was sexually involved with her before she was 18. So in his movie Manhattan, there's a, a much older man dating a high school student. In 
another movie, he has a poster of Charlie Chaplin, who has been called out for having sex with children, with young women. And I just feel like there's a lot of evidence in his art about his politics. So I think that there's artistic evidence. I don't know about personal evidence, but it'll be interesting what hated docu-series conveys. Michael? Well, from what I understand, the, the footage in the document, I haven't watched the documentary, so I really can't comment, but the footage in the documentary is, is supposed to be pretty damning. I mean, some of the testimony from the folks in the family is pretty serious stuff. And, and I think, you know, what this speaks to, of, of course, is a couple of things. One is the media context at the time when the story was first reported way back, right, when it was pitched as kind of a dispute between Woody and Mia and kind of almost like a, a, a more of a rumor than a legitimate news story or a story about relationship discord between Woody and Mia rather than a story about the actual uh, potential abuse that had taken place. That's indicative of, you know, the kind of overall media atmosphere that we were in where it just wasn't treated as a reporting matter in the same way that it is now, thanks to folks like Ronan Farrow and others, right? And of course, the victims themselves, most importantly, who have come forward and made these things into the national stories they've become. And then I think the other thing that we've got to attend to here mm -hmm. is, you know, much like the Bill Cosby saga, where he was using his power within the film industry and Harvey Weinstein too, using their power within the film industry as a platform to potentially, you know, allegedly in Alan's case, you know, kind of cement a, a perch from which he could um, assault and otherwise abuse uh, the women in his life, the women and girls in his life. Uh, th that's a powerful piece of this because Pharaoh's involvement with him was professional as well as personal. And there, there are real control issues that go along with that. And, and it, it extends beyond his personal relationship with her to the broader position of women in the film industry and the degree to which they're preyed upon in some respects by um, producers and right. other power brokers. Yeah, I think it's getting a lot of uh, a new look, as both of you have said, because the context of Me Too has made people aware of some of these issues that they just didn't take into account the first go around. That's not to say that he's, you know, uh, will be determined to be guilty. But that is to say that it gives you fresh eyes to to hear Dylan Farrow's story, I think, in a way. Let me move on to Mr. Potato Head. No more Mr. Potato Head. Okay. Um, and I think this is a very interesting story, but I'm really interested in you, you all's take. Just to be clear, they're changing it to Potato Head, the toy known as Mr. Potato Head. But... Mr. Potato Head, the character, will be available, as will Mrs. Potato Head and the potential spuds. Um, they're just changing the brand. So, as they say, it to be gender neutral and more welcoming. I know, Rachel, you're going to say this is a whole bunch of commercial stuff going on. But I think it's kind of an important cultural moment. There has been a lot of, of you know, offensive packaging that has been changed recently. Right, like Aunt Jemima has removed Land of Lakes Butter, removed the kneeling Native American, and so I think this sort of fits into a cultural moment. Michael, well, it's interesting because the way they're pitching this change is a little bit strange to me. <laughs> they're changing the name of the brand, correct? Mm -hmm. From Mr. That's Potato right. Head to Potato Head but they're not changing the characters. So they're still selling a Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head character, but the brand is now called Potato Head. 
So it's kind of like they're, they're like wading into the water <laughs> of gender justice and common sense really in the world that we live in now, but don't want to all the way, go there all the way. I think they're saying a lot of the right things about modernizing the company. Um, but I hope that what it points to is, you know, as Rachel pointed out, right? like it used to be that these things were like, you, you can never change them because the brand is too traditional and you'll alienate customers. Like that's over, right? That, that argument is now done. Now that we've dispensed with that argument, right? I think we'll start to see many, many more of these changes. So even though this is kind of a small change, I applaud it because these kind of small acts of something like courage from Hasbro are going to spread, I think, uh, throughout the industries that are related. Well, let's go to Disney. And many people are saying they're not courageous in their latest film, Raya and the Last Dragon, because they've assumed that all Asians are alike. So the story is about an animated movie about a young woman named Rhea, voiced by Kelly Marie Tran. But people will remember her from the Star Wars uh, movies, and has all is a star star loaded cast: Sandra Oh, Aquafina, Jimmy Chan, and on and on and on. But the film is has a Southeast Asian origin, and many of the actors are of East Asian ancestry. So it has a little feeling like. Disney said, whatever, all, you're all Asian, Asian, just, you know, do your thing here in the script and we'll be good. And um, that's not going over so well, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, we're, we're entering a place in particular, and look, this is, this is another issue where we're in a moment now where people are paying attention to Asian American politics and the Asian diaspora in America as it's represented culturally in ways that we really haven't before, in part because of the racism weaponized by folks who are trying to use the coronavirus to, to perpetuate anti-Asian sentiment and the violence that we've seen visited upon people of the Asian diaspora in the United States over the past few months where we're seeing random attacks on the street that are racist attacks and assaults um, with little explanation. So we can only assume that they have to do with this kind of ideology of hatred and blame for the virus. So I just think we're in it. It's, it's worth marking this moment because this is a marginalized population that is assumed to be homogenous as you described and privileged in so many ways. But what we know is that when you peek under the hood of those stereotypes, you see immense diversity both in the economic standing of Asians in America and in the cultural beliefs, practices, national cultures of those groups. And it's not good enough to just say, oh, you're Asian, so you count, right? We're talking about honoring not only uh, cultural traditions and stories, but the labor of the folks, the creators, right, who made the story to begin with. So, so I would hope that we can get to a place where we understand that, oh, they're Asian, they're all Asian, so it counts. Like that's not good enough anymore. We need to take this diversity of experience into account, whether we're talking about art or politics. Rachel. No, I absolutely agree with Michael's linking it to the anti-Asian response to the COVID virus. And, you know, I also want to point out that Disney has a long history of racism. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and I just like remember 
going to Disneyland as a kid and being kind of appalled by certain things. Anyway, so Disney has this long history, but it's not the only thing being called out, right? Because recently there was a set of Dr. Seuss books that are being stopped being published because of their representation of Asians. And I do think Michael is right that people think about Asians as all the same, or some people do. And I think we need to sort of move past that. Well, let's end on some good news. One Asian, one individual Asian woman, Chloe Zhao, got Best Director at this year's virtual Golden Globes uh, ceremony. Let's take a listen and then I'll get your response. Thanks for everyone. Uh, thank you, uh, Hollywood Foreign Prize. And, and thank you, my fellow nominees. Thank you for making beautiful, beautiful movies. Um, this award belongs to the whole Nomadland team. Um, the entire cast and crew, all the producers, everyone at Searchlight, you all know who you are. Thank you. Thank you so much. So in getting this award, she became the first woman to be named Best Director since Barbara Streisand for Yentl 40 years ago. And also, she was one of three women in uh, nominated in the director's category, which had never happened before. Her film, No Man Land, which stars Frances McDormand, is getting all kinds of praise. But the point is... This is where we are. <laughs> Talk about representation long overdue. Uh, we're 2021, and she is the first Asian woman to win for Best Director. Michael, got a good word to say as we close? I mean, I just hope it's a sign of more to come, in particular because when we talk about representation in the film industry, we often think about the faces who are on the screen and represent visual representation when it comes to the cast of the movies. But we know that if we're going to see sustained change in the business, we have to also change the composition, the demographics of folks who are behind the camera, the folks who are approving screenplays, the folks who are uh, the cinematographers and directors. So I think this is a really important uh, achievement. And again, we're in a moment where we can't afford to ignore uh, the, the politics of this, because what happens in, in, in film and art feeds back into our kind of day-to-day -day lives as, as citizens. So it, it's, it's a huge accomplishment and one that I hope won't be, be overlooked and one that I hope portends uh, more such accomplishments in the future. A great positive place to end. As always, I enjoy both of you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Callie. Michael Jeffries is professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Rachel Rubin is professor of American Studies at UMass Boston. Coming up, last year's 100th anniversary of women's suffrage for white women is part of a long history for gender parity in America, a history and movement that hasn't always been inclusive. Now a new book asserts that feminism, as we think of it, has morphed into a brand Coabex's white feminism, from the suffragettes to influencers and who they leave behind, is our March selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Just in time for Women's History Month, a new book tracing the history of feminism. 
Author Koa Beck argues that feminism, as many think of it, is not a grassroots movement working for societal change as much as it is a brand with a corporate focus. In White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind, Beck deconstructs the most well-known American movement for gender parity. White Feminism is our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Beck is the former editor-in-chief of Jezebel, a woman-focused website, a former executive editor at Vogue, and senior features editor at MarieClaire.com, as well as co-host of the Me Too Memos on WNYC's The Takeaway. And Beck joins me now from Los Angeles. Welcome, Koa. Thank you so much for having me, Callie. I'm so glad to have you. Let's start basically. Why don't you define white feminism? Um, which in various parts in your book you've described as kind of default feminism. I define white feminism as a very specific approach and ideology towards achieving gender equality that pulls considerably from colonialism, imperialism, um, some key pieces from white supremacy as well, um, and labor exploitation, and deeming it, you know, feminist and progressive to engage in an individual accumulation of wealth and power. So what's interesting is that you just also describe it as a state of mind. And to be clear, as you've defined it, it can be exclusionary for other white women and lots of other people who are not white, just just to elaborate on that. Yeah, I, I think that a really successful tenant and practice of white feminism, specifically through, you know, as some people define them, the waves of feminism in this country, has been exporting this ideology to people who are not straight, who are not white, um, who are not middle class, but nevertheless have to aspire to this sort of like middle class lifestyle or aspirations to be seen in white feminism. And just to have more clarity, you see a difference in quote, white feminism and gender rights. I mean, we might mush it all together, but you want to be clear about that. Yeah, I, I see white feminism, you know, of now and, you know, its origins. Um, I trace it through the modern suffrage movement. White feminism is very binary centric. Um, it's often very, you know, heterosexist. Um, whereas, like, when I review a lot of, say, like Native American movements or, you know, explicitly queer movements in this country, there's a much higher um, level of gender literacy and also just systems that oppress marginalized genders, say, like, through, you know, various trans experiences, non binary people who are gender variant, that sort of thing. And white feminism, you know, while priding itself here and there on being quote unquote queer inclusive, um, I don't find that literacy to actually be at the heart of white feminism. So, what motivated you to write this book? <laughs> a few things. Um, one, I think this is the absolute biggest reason, um, towards the end of my career in media, specifically when I was the EIC at Jezebel, I was doing a lot of public speaking. Um, and this was, you know, around the time that Me Too had been reawakened and there was really an intense, you know, in some respects, like gender consciousness that was allegedly happening in this country. And I was speaking on all these panels, you know, about gender and reporting and also just addressing these societal dynamics. And every time I did one of these speaking engagements, there would be a young person in the audience who would raise their hand and ask me directly about white feminism and use that word. And in a lot of ways, you know, I've taken my own navigation of white feminism kind of for granted <laughs> um, in that it 
to me always seemed like just a professional skill set, you know, which I do get into in the book. You know, I have a lot of structural analysis of white feminism, but I also recount my own experiences with white feminism one-to-one. And I always wanted to tell these people who are asking me these questions that, you know, the dynamics that they were experiencing while they, you know, are very personal and hurtful there is a huge historical context by which that is happening. The environment in which, you know, your friend who, you know, you have grown up with, you know, looks you in the face and says that, you know, immigration is not a quote unquote feminist issue. There is a long history of that in this country. And so I wanted to take a lot of those personal experiences that I was hearing about, especially from younger people, but not specific to them, and put them against this historical backdrop. Well, let's talk about that historical backdrop. It is Women's History Month. And you go right back, you know, to the beginning for some. Um, We just celebrated last year the 100th anniversary of the the winning for the right to vote for white women. As we know, (laughs) Black women and others uh, didn't get the vote for many, many decades later. But you really put on the table some hard questions about looking at that quote-unquote, feminist movement of the suffragettes um, and the choices made by those leaders then, which then have sort of trickled down (laughs) uh, and still are in place now. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I get into some of the decisions, as you said, and dynamics of, you know, a lot of what historians call, you know, modern suffragists in our country and, you know, women who I definitely have read about in my lifetime. And I feel like, you know, if you do move in white feminist spaces or, you know, are aware of sort of, you know, that specific narrative of white women's rights in this country, you might be familiar with many of these figures. Um, I get into specifically Alice Paul, who, for your listeners, you know, who have heard vaguely about, you know, a specific suffrage parade in which, you know, black women were told to go to the back of the line. Um, I get into that exact. Yes, the 1913 one. Yes. I get into that exact march and then the dynamics um, that facilitated that decision and specifically Alice Paul's decision to do that. What motivates a lot of, you know, the uh, history of white feminism, but even now I would argue, and I trace this thread, is that white feminism has always been hyper-concerned with optics. And so for Alice Paul and many of her colleagues who were, you know, in a lot of ways trying to get the vote for white women, but also really playing to commercialism and consumerism, there were a lot of respectability politics there that, you know, would essentially motivate the public to only extend, and I use that, you know, very consciously, rights to a very specific woman. And Alice Paul, you know, was acutely aware of that. And her um, decision with her colleagues to basically mandate that the march be segregated was motivated by this idea to very homogenize the suffrage movement and to, you know, when you thought of suffrage as an American in 1913, you were supposed to think of these very young, white, able-bodied, thin, heterosexual women who aspired to this very, like, middle-class femininity. Um, You weren't supposed to think of Black women, you weren't supposed to think of Native women, you know, as well as the many other women who were advocating on behalf of the suffrage in this country. And that was very, uh, a very intentional strategy. And it moved on, as you point out in your book, uh, down through 
other movements. I, I'd love you to read uh, from page 45, uh, which illustrates this whole emphasis on image and homogenization, as, as you've just described. And this is in, uh, your book is divided into three parts. This is the first part. It's called The History of White Feminism. And this is from that part. In the national boycott of 1973, in which meat prices had risen 20% in one year thanks to inflation, Time magazine immortalized the standoff between American housewives and livestock producers with a spring cover story. But much like the New York Times reporting of the Jewish housewives in 1902, you can see the media bias and influence at work in the cover illustration. Reporting of this time details participation and price scrutiny from Latina housewives and Black housewives in Harlem, including the support of Florence Rice, a Black consumer activist and considered the leader of the Harlem consumer movement. But time boils the visual of the boycott down to this, a white passing thin housewife with all the markers of middle class. She carries a purse, granted it appears empty, that matches her yellow headband. And as menacing as she is supposed to be with her don't eat meat sign, arched eyebrows and aggressive stance, you get the sense that if she wasn't boycotting meat, she would lovingly serve it to you. The ways in which activist movements get translated often says more about the editorial interpretation of these calls for justice than the reality. The initiative to place a thin, white-passing housewife as the singular visual marker of this type of consumer activism, which is deeply rooted in the efforts of Black, Chicano, and immigrant women, signals who you should think about when you consider the call for lower meat prices. Not a woman like Dolores Huerta, who had organized the successful 1965 Delano strike that resulted in an unprecedented renegotiation of workers' rights. You're supposed to think about a woman who is conventionally feminine, who carries a purse, who is thin, who is performing both gender and race as society dictates she should. She is calling for the meat boycott, and therefore it is a worthy cause. A single image accomplishes this messaging and has for so much of the history of media. The image of Gloria Steinem has often functioned this way as a shorthand for a lot of gendered issues. That's my guest, Koa Beck. She's the author of White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Now, Koa, some of the tension uh, that has come to be from those young women that you would hear when you were doing public speaking and, and others as large groups uh, would try to come together as one, you know, in the name of feminism to, to make a point. And one of the biggest events was, of course, the Women's March um, right after former President Trump was uh, inaugurated. And this was to be a huge collective of women with kind of singular voices of, you know, we're sick of this stuff and, and we're all here together. But it kind of blew up because there was not enough discussion at the top about 
what you have very carefully explained in your book, a sole focus on sexism without a broader understanding that, you know, feminism for a lot of people who are not white, particularly, there are issues of race and class. Before you address that, let's take a listen to Linda Sarsour. She was a a Women's March board member. And in 2019, she was on CBS This Morning talking about the Women's March controversies. What's at the center of this controversy is really what has been at the center of every single uh, attempt at intersectional feminist movements. How do you bring women from all backgrounds, black women, white women, Asian American, trans women, Muslim and refugee women? So we're really going through growing pains. We hope people continue to believe in the work that we do because the common enemy of white supremacy and this administration is a far larger threat to all of us. So, Koa, respond to that, because that was a big fracture, um, and it actually got a lot of discussion going, looking at, you know, what is feminism, what should it be, who does it include, and who does it exclude? Well, in addressing these exact dynamics in my book, um, I pull from a lot of the archive of social media leading up to the march, because when I was looking to tell the story, um, I remember, you know, being in newsrooms and seeing these posts, you know, on the women's uh, March Facebook. And essentially what you had, and this played out, you know, eventually in national re- reporting that, you know, the Times published on these uh, d- divisions that were happening, was that you had, you know, what I would define as essentially white feminists, not necessarily white women, who were coming to this march expecting a certain priority and focus and centralness in this march. And yet when Women's March as an organization would start to message, you know, through like, you know, bell hooks quotes and things like that, that they were looking to really look across gender in terms of the exact dynamics you describe, you know, sexual orientation, immigration, class, race, there was real pushback from white feminists, you know, who, um, to my assessment, you know, are very sensitive to moments in which they are not being centralized within feminist discourse. And, you know, many women responded, you know, of these white feminists responded by not coming, (laughs) um, which is, you know, a common trajectory. And so I think that, you know, the effort of what Women's March was trying to accomplish, you know, should be supported. Um, I get into in my book, you know, the anti-Semitic allegations, as well as, you know, the fracturing and the branding and and that sort of thing. But I think that, um, especially now, you know, three, four years after the fact, I think that what they tried to pull off um, should continue to be supported, you know, whether it's in Women's March proper or, frankly, you know, with other gender movements and other organizations that attempt to battle patriarchy. Koa, one of the other things that uh, that you make very clear in your book, which is very interesting, to, I have to say, I really hadn't stopped to think about. More than a few things in your book I hadn't stopped to think about. But one of them is that <laughs> uh, the emphasis on the white feminism, as you just define it, is on the individual and not the collective. So if if you think about that, then, then of course, the Women's March back then was necessarily not going to be able to hold, the center wasn't going to hold because there's too much emphasis on the individual in that moment, even though there was a real attempt to bring together a collective. So explain what you mean by an, an emphasis on the individual. It looks, when we say a movement, we think of lots of people in a big group, but how, so how can that be individual? Well, white feminism as an ideology and a practice has been very successful at 
taking that exact mindset and really, you know, adapting it for the times. So most recently, for instance, like in my lifetime and, you know, a lot of stories and feminist conversations that I've had to cover, feminism is really marked and gauged by one, your individual needs as a woman and also your individual advancement. So white feminism and white feminist narratives of gender progress in this country focus on an individual woman achieving a certain white collar leadership position. They focus on her starting a business. They focus on her finding the right partner. Whereas in my book, I contrast this ideology with, you know, many other movements by Latinx communities, um, black, immigrant, disabled, queer movements that one person from their community achieving a certain role or ascending certain classes is not a marker of progress. Um, They're looking at more collective advancements, you know, everybody having access to clean water, um, everybody having access to certain parental leave, everybody having access to meat that is affordable. And it's a big difference between white feminist ideologies and practices and, you know, broadly speaking, like literally the gender movements of everybody else. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm speaking with Koa Beck, author of White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. It's our March selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar book club. Here's the other thing that was completely took me aback, but of course, I'm totally participating in in it, Koa. (laughs) And that is your whole point about corporate culture and white feminism. I mean, I am all in. I was just listening to, I mean, reading some of your your pieces in the book about, you know, how how the brand is uh, sold to us. You know, some of these articles about the boss lady products, you know, chic desktop accessories, 10 wardrobe staples that will make you look and feel like a boss. <laughs> I cannot tell you, I would click on that. I'd click on all of that. And it would never have occurred to me that it had something to do very seriously about, you know, how I am thinking about or processing, you know, feminism in any way. But but to be co-opted, really is what you're saying, by corporate forces is very serious. Talk about what that means in this setting. I track in the book, you know, this idea that you as a feminist, you know, however you're defining that or thinking about that or somebody, you know, who's interested in in gender progress, this idea that you buy your feminism, you buy your politics and you engage in political discourse by buying, especially as a woman or a non-binary person, that is actually not new. And I really learned that through the research of this book. Um, This idea of, you know, purchasing girl boss mugs and nevertheless she persisted t-shirts, that actually originated with, you know, the um, birth of white feminism in this country, where the middle to upper class white suffragists, they also look to partner with consumerism and commercialism to basically, you know, spread the gospel of suffrage for them. And the suffragettes before them, you know, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, they did not do that. Um, But, you know, women like Alice Paul, for instance, and a number of other like contemporary suffrage organizations, they were right there pushing like votes for women flags and like buttons and hats. And one suffrage organization famously declared Macy's the headquarters for suffrage (laughs) and did very elaborate like window displays with an official suffrage blouse and, you know, all these, um, you know, for the era, their own desk accessories, right? So it's, it's not a, it's not a new practice, but it is a very signature 
white feminism practice um, in that, you know, again, many other feminisms and gender movements in this country, they're looking to critique capitalism and this idea that political power and political resistance is transactional in that you, you know, pay money to then like show that you're a feminist or advertise that you're a feminist. You know, many marginalized genders in this country don't have money to begin with. <laughs> so if that's a barrier to participate in feminism, then, you know, that would leave really a, a lot of people out in, in this country, as white feminism does. Also, in the whole mix of this is the fact that feminism or white feminism, as you've described it, is now a brand is branded. I just want people, while people are listening to this going, yeah, right. I mean, you're really exaggerating, Kelly, and you're really exaggerating, Koa. (laughs) I want to give you an example, which I had not thought about until you put in the book. Here's Beyonce's track, Flawless, featuring an excerpt (laughs) from Nigerian writer Chimamande Ngozi Adichie. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. You wake up, All right. Now, that track went, I can't even tell you how many records that sold. (laughs) By the way, Chimamanda, after I read about it, I don't think she was consulted about her work being put in Beyonce's music. I mean, that is branding at the highest possible level. As a result of that, just to close the loop, the whole book that Chimamande wrote about what is feminism or sold, you know, off the charts because of Beyonce. So this is not a critique of Beyonce per se. It's just that we're all in a branded space. You know, I I include um, a lot of my professional experience and we ran, you know, all sorts of pieces, you know, um, really championing white collar leadership positions for women, career success for women, you know, all sorts of like feminist headlines and, you know, icons. And yet, you know, on the inside in these workplaces in which, you know, I was managing people or working alongside other people, women I mentored and, you know, worked alongside with were terrified to ask for raises. Many of them did not receive, you know, decent parental leave. Many of them were also racially harassed, you know, by women in these quote-unquote feminist workspaces. So that's what I mean when I say that the feminism was a brand. It didn't actually change, you know, any of the infrastructure of the company in terms of policies, and especially the women who work there. And again, you know, white feminism has always been really keen to engage in labor exploitation. And that happens now and it happened 100 years ago. Um, But again, you know, that's where white feminism and feminism broadly is an optical campaign. It exists on the outside. It's how you're supposed to appear. It's not necessarily the lived reality of the women who work in these brands and who are making this narrative every day. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about, Koa Beck, and I thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. (laughs) Koa Beck is the author of White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman and Bill Piacitelli. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.